How much do you really know about plastics? Are we all being misled? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 97, and thanks so much for listening. Today we'll be talking about plastics, a familiar circular economy topic with someone from a less familiar background. Alice Marr is Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick in the UK, and she'll help us unpick the propaganda about plastics and their role in a circular economy. I came across Alice's work when she was interviewed about her latest book, Plastic Unlimited, how corporations are fueling the ecological crisis and what we can do about it. That was in IEMA's Transform magazine. You might not have heard about IEMA. It's the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. Alice unpacks some of the ways the plastics industry is trying to improve our perception of plastics, including how it tries to reframe the circular economy as a recycling issue. She highlighted other worrying aspects of how the plastics and petrochemicals industry is operating, and we'll hear some of those. Spookily, a few weeks later, on the same day I'd emailed Alice to invite her onto the podcast, I was in the kitchen half listening to BBC Radio 4's sociology programme, Thinking Aloud, and up popped Alice, being interviewed about the ways the plastic industry uses its corporate power to influence our thinking around plastics. Alice Marr holds a PhD in sociology from the London School of Economics and was principal investigator of the large-scale European Research Council project Toxic Expertise, Environmental Justice and the Global Petrochemical Industry. That was between 2015 and 2020. Her research focuses on environmental justice, corporate power and the politics of green industrial transformations. Her next book is The Petrochemical Planet, Multiscalar Battles of Industrial Transformation. In today's conversation, I've asked Alice to help bust some myths around plastics and their potential role in a circular economy. Myth number one, plastics can support a net zero economy. Myth number two, plastics are safe. In other words, it's wrong to link plastics to health issues. Myth number three, plastics are essential for our quality of life. Myth number four, exporting plastic waste to low-income countries helps the country and all the local people create value from that plastic. Myth number five, plastic recycling can play an important role in the circular economy. Let's meet Alice Marr, and I'll be back afterwards to share my takeaways. Alice, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, and thanks for joining us today. And I really got a lot out of your book, Plastic Unlimited, um, which I came across from a sort of left field source when you were on a, 
um, a BBC Radio 4 uh, programme aimed more at sociology. So it was a surprise to hear you talking about plastics on that. And that really got me intrigued. So um, I got in touch and here we are. And what I'd like to do today is go through some of the the, the myths around the plastic and petrochemical industries and see if we can bust a few of those because, um, as you explained in the book, an awful lot of communications about plastics are not quite what, what they would um, seem to be. So could we start um, with the, the, the sort of um, the central framework, if you like, that the way the plastic and petrochemical sector is influencing how we think about plastics to start with. First of all, that plastics can support a net zero economy. Uh, thank you. I mean, this has uh, long been uh, a theme within the plastics and petrochemical industry that, that plastics are good for the climate because they're lightweight, because they save energy. And they're, you know, backing a lot of the new technologies. For example, they're in solar panels, they're in the wind turbine blades, and some of the major petrochemical companies, such as Ineos, uh, is uh, behind creating green hydrogen to as as the solution. So uh, they very much have you know, positioned plastics as as being the sort of like it or not material that will help us in the transition. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, manyfold. Uh, I guess the main issue is that 99% of plastics are made out of fossil fuels. That doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Uh, so plastics themselves are uh, fossil fuels. They're one of the biggest uh, contributors to the climate crisis. Uh, the plastics and petrochemical industry together are the largest industrial consumer of fossil fuels, and they're the third largest industrial emitter. And what's even more astonishing, I think, is that plastics are predicted to basically be the savior of fossil fuels through the energy transition because they're uh, predicted to be the biggest driver of oil demand uh, by the International Energy Agency. And that's because of those promises around technological solutions, uh, but also because of uh, continuing growth uh, projected in, in or all around the world, but especially in uh, the global south uh, where uh, plastic consumption shows no signs of, of abating. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, so I guess that's sort of two major strands, isn't it? An increase in the amount of single-use packaging, particularly targeted at the, at the global south, where, as we know, most of those countries don't have any infrastructure to collect and help recycle that. And then the second thing that they seem to be focusing on is the recycling of plastics using, surprise, surprise, petrochemicals to do all that recycling. And in the book, you talk about how a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, conversation and uh, communication around that, um, you know, plastic recycling will save us. And yet those solutions don't really exist. Um, and where they do exist, they practically use just as many chemicals as um, we would have needed for virgin plastics. Yeah, I mean, that, the, 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 the biggest 
solution that's been proposed by, by the petrochemical and plastics industry to the circular economy has been recycling. And one of the challenges, as, as I'm sure you are well aware, is that plastics traditionally are, are recycled through what's known as mechanical recycling, breaking them down and then re remaking them into new um, products. But due to issues related to contamination of different layers of plastics, the sheer scales of, of what would be required to actually fully recycle or, or try to recycle all, all, all of plastics. They're so mixed, so contaminated, so, uh, you know, variable that the industry uh, says the only way they could feasibly do that in technological terms is to break them down through what's known as chemical recycling all the way down to their molecular level to reduce that contamination. And the problem is that that's a pilot technology, but most of those technologies are required to be, in order to be feasible, produce at enormous scales that actually, while they might be good, theoretically speaking, for circular economy, like for, for saying, oh yes, this amount has been recycled, they are tremendously carbon intensive. So, mm. so actually, it's a trade-off. They're, they're, you know, when they shift to saying it's more recyclable, then they're dropping the ball effectively in terms of climate. Yeah, yeah. So the second myth that I thought you bust really well in the book is that plastics are safe. And I thought it was really interesting when you described, you know, how, how the plastics industry guides us into that thinking. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that plastics have never been safe. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's many different types of plastic, but in order to produce any type of plastic involves toxic emissions and, and toxic pollutants across every stage of the plastics production life cycle. And one of the problems that's very much embedded into to the infrastructure and our societal dependence, if you like, on plastics is that in the early development of plastics, uh, the risks of such toxicity were uh, either not known or um, completely ignored or and denied by the industry in the interests of creating markets, creating profits. And it turns out that uh, plastics are yeah, dangerous when it, it, from the point of uh, producing, like, like re refining the, the chemicals, the, the people who live close to those plants through to the consumption of the, the plastics, like actually leaching out of some of some kinds of plastic materials or, or end consumer goods and and through to uh, the waste. So the burning of waste, uh, the recycling of waste. And it's actually chemically impossible to separate out and say, OK, well, here's a safe type of plastic and we'll just focus on that because there's byproducts uh, which are noxious and and end up being needing to be dealt with and used and so a lot of the logic of of making different kinds of products from different streams has to do with what you not not wasting or not letting escape those different chemical byproducts yeah i mean so, yeah. kind of really really keeping things keeping everything in the loop you know often when people talk about the circular economy they're thinking about the product and keeping the product in the system. 
but we can also think about making the circular economy happen for every stage of production as well. So there should be no emissions or pollution or effluent coming out of a factory. That should all be be cl- be closed. And there was a project, an EU project called, um, I think it was called chemical recycling, um, that advocated for chemical companies to lease their chemicals to the user and then to take those back clean them back Mm -hmm. up into the original format to be used again and either deal with the impurities in a safe way or even create byproducts from the from what they've taken out so you know that there seem to be things happening but obviously not not fast enough and i think another another um kind of surprise to me from reading the book was just how awful the production systems are for petrochemicals and how harmful they can be to the people living around the sites um i was quite shocked to find out that there's there's a place called cancer alley and so on yeah i mean around the world i mean unless you live next to a petrochemical facility you might not know that and and i think the same goes for many of the most dirty polluting uh, industries but yeah they're they're concentrated usually in very large scale complex complexes and uh, if you look at the geography we reproduced as part of our research project a a global petrochemical map of where many of these sites are concentrated and and those are clustered in particular regions one as you mentioned is infamously known as cancer alley uh, in louisiana between new orleans and baton rouge with a very heavy concentration approximately 150 uh, petrochemical facilities and several oil refineries. You can also find such clusters in uh, in Asia, in cities in in China, and in in parts of Europe as well. And those uh, industries, industrial clusters, are very often located in close proximity to uh, people from ethnic minority communities, working class communities, low income communities. Uh, who uh, are, yeah, getting sick. And there's independent reports from communities all around the world and every continent where there's petrochemical production of, you know, accidents and explosions for one, but but also uh, high incidences of cancer, respiratory illnesses, uh, reproductive illnesses. And uh, these happen over long periods of time. And yeah, so this industry has very much been at the forefront of the uh, environmental justice movement uh, and uh, showing that, uh, yeah, calling it environmental racism, actually that this is deliberate on the part of uh, some industries and, and, and even countries for uh, effectively seeing some populations as more worthy of <laughs> being protected versus others mm. yeah it's it's horrific isn't it when you start to think about the the kind of strategies behind that that it you know it hasn't it doesn't seem to just be um happening as a an unhappy accident um so that that's sort of doubly shocking and i guess um there are a few areas of the use of plastic materials where 
some of the health issues are starting to come to the fore. Um, back in episode 20, uh, 82, I was talking to Maria Vesterbos of the Plastic Soup Foundation, who's also started the Plastic, Plastic Health Coalition to try and bring scientists along to start studying the effects of this. Um, and she's campaigning uh, quite successfully about microbeads and microcapsules. And we suddenly, you know, we, um, I was suddenly shocked to find out that these microcapsules are in, you know, laundry liquids and things like that. You know, that you kind of think of microbeads as being in face scrub. So you're thinking, well, if I don't wear, if I don't buy those and use those, then it's okay. And then you find out that, you know, that they've seeped into all sorts of products. So I guess it's quite good news that people are starting to understand more about this and about, um, you know, um, synthetic sportswear. Uh, and some of the chemicals that can be in that. But I guess, again, the industry then tries to um, either, you know, obscure it or find a way to make us think that, you know, we just have to take a little bit of the bad along with all the good things about plastic. Yeah, I mean, I think for the industry, from what I've observed, uh, it's all about markets. So so if if there are, you know... I don't know, for better, want of a better word, middle-class <laughs> green citizens in a particularly wealthy country who refuse to use particular kinds of plastic products, then that's a pretty niche uh, market they're that they're losing. They're going to concentrate the efforts on, uh, you know, single-use uh, sachets in, in South Asia or, or, you know, plastic bottle markets in, in where, wherever they can f find them in a way. So it's almost... Yeah, it's, it's it's there. There are markets where wherever they they look, and they'll do the kind of cost benefit in terms of uh, uh, where where they can access that. So, unless there's something that's coordinated across all plastic markets, then, then it's difficult to see how uh, small interventions are going to make it. A, a big difference but of course it depends on what kind of uh, perspective you have as to whether you know you see those gains in, in terms of you know banning particular products being a successful strategy. Mm. I guess we kind of need a class action don't we to um, with people worldwide campaigning against about something or not campaigning but you know taking taking action on the health issues in certain products and um that might encourage legislators to take more of a precautionary principle approach as well, instead of letting things get into the market. And then only 10 or 20 years later, do we find out um, about the, you know, the evolving health issues. So coming on to another myth then, um, which kind of plays into some of that, that plastics are essential to our quality of life. You talk about some great examples in the book of how the plastics industry uses its communications to to brush away any concerns about uh you know whether plastics are um harmful or not yeah i mean i think this is this is the key dilemma uh plastics obviously are in medical products as as was very much highlighted during the pandemic uh they're in medical tubing and in you know all those uh, single <laughs> portions of, of vaccines. Uh, they're, they're in safety equipment, 
and yeah, just basic things like our, our houses, shatterproof glass type materials and computers and yeah, everyday products. And yeah, they're typically lower cost. And and so, yeah, the industry would it has a common narrative, which is just be realistic here. We're not going to get rid of this. It's important. It's it's valuable. What makes it valuable is that it can be made into basically any kind of material quality. Uh, so it could be hard, soft, <laughs> flexible, strong, uh, lightweight, you name it. That's what was always touted, I guess, uh, as the miracle of plastics. I, I think that, that the challenge then is to think, how did we get here? How did we become so embedded, so entangled? And how could you then start to un unpack or, un or disentangle from the dependence on the most toxic, wasteful and harmful aspects? And so uh, by packaging all <laughs> plastics together as if they're a single entity or commodity that has you know, both the beneficial and the negative uh, or harmful attributes, then it's very difficult to know how to maneuver within that. Mm. Uh, but but if you then start to say, well, actually, do we really need, you know, single use sachet portions, period? Or do we really need, you know, 500 billion plastic bottles being produced annually around the world uh, when, you know, they weren't even in existence until the 70s? Uh, and yeah, thinking carefully about even you know there's there's uh, movements to replace the the kinds of plastic that are available in, in in medical applications in healthcare because of because of uh the endocrine disrupting or hormone disrupting properties of some of those kinds of plastics so i, w I wouldn't say oh let's just ban all plastics together altogether you know they, because there are benefits and it takes time, but but I I think uh, that challenging that idea about there's no alternative to to plastics and especially challenging the trajectory that that which is what I what was most sort of or is most disturbing is the exponential growth of plastics that's happened thus far since since you know around the the end of the second world war until now and if you look at the projections up until the next 30 years even it's exponentially increasing just as fossil fuel emissions have been increasing in terms of global heating and so uh just earlier this year there was a major scientific report saying that uh the we've crossed a planetary boundary not only for climate but for mm plastic pollution and chemical pollution, endangering ecosystems, endangering health. And the costs of that are incalculable. Uh, so yeah, challenging that narrative, but adding nuance to it and thinking, well, what 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 does essential mean? And and what could we do to think about effect effectively scaling back and living differently? Yeah. And that's, you know, it's happened to me quite a few times on LinkedIn when I've called for, you know, a circular economy on some kind of plastic product. And then you see the plastic lobby pile in and start talking about how fantastic plastics are and how, you know, if I had to do without X, Y and Z, you know, how would I 
managed to live a life. And so that's what they do is they kind of ignore what you've actually raised and start to talk about some of the things that, that most people would agree um, are, you know, a helpful use of <laughs> use of plastics. Um, but yeah, like you, you give an example in the book of, of bicycle helmets and so on. Um, so it's things like that, that they that they fall behind. So just coming back to the to the packaging and so on and the, the recycling. Um, another myth that I, th- I thought was really interesting from the book is this kind of um, trying to give the impression that exporting packaging and waste from the global north to countries in the global south, um, you know, can help either governments or people themselves create value out of that waste. So they're even able to sell the story of um, you know, waste exports as as a good thing from a, an economic point of view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, there was an interesting uh, article that that came out earlier this year, uh, where um, the Ocean Conservancy Trust had to rescind their report or retract it, called "Stemming the Tide," and published in two thousand fifteen, which in which they said or perpetuated that industry myth that. Uh, countries in in the global south, primarily in Asia, are responsible uh, for their that waste, and that incineration of that waste uh, is actually a, a viable solution as a technological solution to dealing with the crisis. And I, I think that uh, throughout the book, and you know, as many activists before me, so it's not an original claim, have have pointed out, uh, uh, these companies are. You know, blaming uh, both consumers individually and countries in uh, the the global south for having high levels of plastic waste in their environments, d- blaming it on mismanagement or issues related to education, without taking responsibility for or admitting that they're actually have been dumping the products, like selling uh, single use sachets that are non-recyclable that they know are non-recyclable to uh, low-income populations and doing that so very aggressively and then you know promoting this uh, the export and and in some cases the illegal dumping of uh, post-consumer recycled waste to these companies something that activists for a long time have called waste colonialism Mm. uh, which is this unjust international trade uh, in uh, yeah, not hazardous waste, which which uh, some forms of plastic waste would be classified as, which ends up getting burned or or dumped or uh, yeah, illegally or mistreated, I guess. And yeah, there is this narrative in in many of the development projects that uh, this plastic is has a high value and can be you know, uh, helpful and ec- economically beneficial for populations, which I think it's important to point out. It's a, a, like the informal waste sector is, you know, it's millions of people worldwide and, and they're, they're, it's very varied and, and some people do rely on it for their livelihood. So I think you couldn't make kind of blanket claims about what is happening in very different contexts. Uh, but, you know, there, there have been certainly... Um, exposés about some of the false promises of economic 
well-being. Uh, for example, there was a, a report uh, earlier this year about Unilever reported in the Gu Guardian uh, and also based on research from the Global uh, Alliance for uh, Incinerator Alternatives, where they showed that Unilever had been pushing these uh, sachet portions and then claiming that they were offering these wonderful jobs for waste collectors, having these great recycling programs, but actually uh, these were failures. They're unviable. They halted and left people even worse off or with sort of hopes and, and dreams that that this would actually help their lives and and it didn't so it was quite scathing in terms of the gap between um you know what was uh offered and and what was the reality mm. again it comes back to a recurring theme from what we've talked about doesn't it the big gap between the narrative and the reality of what's yeah. happening out there Alice, coming coming back to recycling, which we talked about, you know, at at the start, um, one of the things I noticed from from again from from the book, which I just had so many insights, is this this kind of badge for advanced recycling technologies and how the industry is kind of portraying that as, you know, a new a new way of doing things. Um, and they've even managed to get it classified as manufacturing in the United States, which means fewer regulations. Um, so is is there anything that you'd want to highlight there in terms of things that people should look out for, for, for you know, um, developments around where they live and, and proposals from the industry to, you know, create some new solution? Yeah, I mean, chemical recycling is, is advanced recycling is another word for chemical recycling. If you talk to environmental activists and, and many scientists, they would say that this is actually, in many cases, just another word for incineration, which is toxic and causes harm uh, through toxic emissions effectively to, to people who live nearby. I think actually what's quite interesting with regard to the recent legislation, 20 states in the US have, have classified, as you say, advanced recycling as manufacturing, in a way that's showing movement away from what they did before, which was to say, actually, this is the solution to the circular economy. It's really green. It's, it's it, it should be considered recycling. And, and, you know, it was many in the plastics and petrochemical industries were promoting advanced recycling as the solution to circular economy. So the European uh, sanctioned circular economy action plan and, and innovations related to that have chemical recycling as as one of the key elements of, of that and now i i would see this as actually more of a, a, a an admission in a way that if it's being classified as manufacturing instead of as recycling and waste management then then they're actually saying classifying it more in the dirty industries side of, of things so that, as you say, they could have fewer environmental regulations surrounding that. So I think it shows that the industry doesn't take a single approach. Like sometimes it might take a proactive uh, kind of approach, say, casting itself as as part of the solution, being sustainable, green, nice. Other times they just sort of dig their heels in and say, you know, no, we're we're manufacturing, and we don't want and we don't want 
bans on single-use plastics and and this is about jobs and it's about mm. um creating prosperity and and there's no toxic issues to deal with <laughs> here so you know just pointing deflecting from the across the different issues and so yeah i mean i think it's quite frightening actually that uh while <laughs> um yeah this this t- toxic type of industrial activity advanced recycling or chemical re- recycling most of the projects are actually being proposed in parts of the global south and are being resisted in those places <laughs> because of the, the levels of toxicity uh there's a few small scale developments uh, using a, a a kind of a slightly less contentious type of re- chemical recycling in in Europe but the the fact that in the US they're pushing for a federal bill that increases these types of recycling plants all over the U- US and they're very likely to be located following environmental injustice patterns in the US uh close to communities of color and uh, disadvantaged populations yeah absolutely i think communities should organize and, and i mean they already are and and pay attention very closely to these slippery slippery words and promises and uh, confusing kinds of language and I, I think what's what's very important to recognize as well or to flag and and, and call out is is to the extent to which the kind of technological framing of a lot of these sorts of issues like chemical recycling what average person knows what that is mm. what you know i i didn't know until i did my research and read the reports and even then there's many different types of chemical recycling it's highly technical it's understood by you know the scientists the, the engineers and many of those scientists and engineers are the first to say it's it's toxic highly toxic and and it's bad for the climate but you know it has some potential with regard to if you want to not create plastics from virgin materials but rather create them from plastics themselves and it it has some capacity there but then what are the the costs of doing so yeah exactly and that you know it all comes back to designing a circular economy that keeps the product in circulation instead of relying on recycling which is you know um what i covered in episode 90 where i talked about some of the false solutions and it really mm. worries me that um even so many policymakers are, are just focusing on you know new generation materials swapping technical materials to biological materials but we don't have the land to do that or relying on on recycling um, which you know it's not it's not going to make any any difference and it's certainly not going to make do much to um, get us towards net zero carbon so for people listening who want to be better informed and avoid some of these false solutions um, would you give any advice in terms of what kind of things to to read or how to look at things differently yeah i i think i mean yeah you you'd asked me uh, previously, you know, or is there one go-to report or is there, you know, are there trusted sources? And I think in some ways, reading against the grain of anything, any kind of information is, 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 is advisable, especially when it comes to kind of technical, technical claims. So, so, you know, doing, looking up different sources of information and seeing who, who published them. And, and I think, going back to what I said about the incalculable costs, it's quite 
easy in a way to think, well, this is the way we've always done things. You know, it's sort of the business as usual. Like in, in my house, for example, when I moved in, there are lead pipes still <laughs> leading into her water mains and all the neighbors didn't seem to mind. And they're like, oh, well, it's been like that for 75 years. So why change them? And, and I, I think, yeah, if you think about the levels of toxicity, health problems, uh, what the cost will be for present and future generations of carrying on with this exponential growth, you really need to think about the the, the in tremendous consequences of not addressing those issues. And so keeping a sense of the bigger picture as, as well as, you know, what would be easy maybe in the, in the short term for just, you know, keeping people happy or continuing on with your business. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's an easy thing, though. I think it's about having difficult conversations, considering alternatives, and then not necessarily even just thinking, oh, because it says it's, yeah, a biodegradable plastic or, or because it says has some sort of stamp on it that says it's sustainable uh, to, you know, question those but at, at, at the same time if you did that endlessly then 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 you might not be able to eat any food or or go, or go anywhere so it can be kind of uh incapacitating in some respects but uh yeah i, I don't know if exactly what what the solution is uh, is start with small steps i guess and see what where you can make some changes yeah um, yeah, I guess just kind of start somewhere with something that you care about, whether that's um, textiles or packaging or what you put on your body in terms of, um, you know, um, lotions and cosmetics and stuff like that. Start with the thing that, that interests you most and um, see what you can unpick about that, which is, um, yeah. Th there's, or or there's what you can control or what's yeah. in your remit as well. So if obviously if you're a policymaker and you have control over a high level EU policy, then then you might think, you know, about pushing back against that industry lobbying. Mm. But if you're, you know, working for a small business, then it might be about thinking about how you can change your supply chains to be more in line with sustainability without you know going bust you know like you know still still being able to you know i think it's about aligning effectively your values as far as you can with with um or sustainable values and justice values uh with with whatever it is that you, that you do mm, yeah and you know the the decision points are, are getting you know ever more um complicated for for people to take on board um but as we all know, you know, if it, the the more each of us does, then um, the more it creates a a movement for change. So, Alice, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help create a better world, what would that be? <laughs> uh, this is a a very challenging question. If one is a realist and a pragmatist, as I tend to be, uh, I, I have a sort of a counterintuitive answer, which is may sound a little out there, but I would say something along the lines of collective healing of trauma or injury uh, among individuals and societies, which I think in, on some levels is what perpetuates injustice, violence, and ignorance. I could unpack that further <laughs> if, if you want, but I think there's elements of, 
of you know misalignment between values and action that are stemming from you know the the kind of collective uh blocks i guess that people have to be able to lead lives that are more fulfilled or not having to make decisions that don't align with their values for reasons that are usually beyond their control mm. yeah that's interesting and i suspect we could have a whole other <laughs> podcast to unpick that it's bringing to mind something i heard about the other day but i won't i won't go down that cul-de-sac and <laughs> start telling that story <laughs> So, Alice, um, do you have a favourite circular economy example or anybody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the programme? I think that some of the zero waste activism, which does align with the more, uh, I guess, deep aspects of circular economy, so uh, w are really interesting and, and would be worth talking to. So Von Hernandez at the Break Free from Plastic uh, uh, movement or any of the members really of, of that movement. Uh, I mentioned before the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, they also have some ideas around zero waste. So I, I think perhaps, a, <laughs> yeah, zero waste communities, like where it's, it's, it's a more, I guess you could say, radical or extreme version of, of the circular economy that's not just sort of the light touch <laughs> recycling only but it's much more around refusal and um and reduction and reuse and and living in com in communities uh in ways that are more uh yeah sustainable effectively yeah and it you know to to go back to something you said earlier those plastic bottles you know only came into the into the system in the 70s so it's not so long ago that we managed without a lot of the things that create unnecessary waste now um and um you know may, maybe I, re I remember um somebody who was at a at a brewery um years and years ago telling me that the best policy they'd put in place was a zero waste policy because the the word zero forced everybody to really think differently not just how can we do a bit less make a bit less waste but how do we absolutely transform whatever this problem is into something completely different um mm -hmm. and that unlocked much more interesting solutions that you know solved the problem and created value in other ways so it's kind of a you know taking that different mindset can unlock different ways of thinking so thank you. And lastly, Alice, how can people find out more and get in touch with you? I'm a bit old fashioned, so I would probably just say my university uh, website and, and my email address on, on there. Uh, I have a link to my project website and I, yeah, among, I'm, I'm uh, among those who have left the, <laughs> the, the Twitter world for now. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. I deleted my twitter accounts two weeks ago as we're as we're speaking but early november around that momentous event i was kind of thinking right i'm out of here not that i'd used it for ages but mm, thank you alice yeah. and and thanks so much for sharing so much of your research work with us i took you know an awful lot of insights away from your book plastic unlimited and i'm really grateful to you for taking the time to share some of that with us today thank you 
Well, thanks very much, Catherine. It's been great to be here and a pleasure to talk. Wow, there was so much to unpack in that, as we covered some of the myths created and perpetuated by the plastics and petrochemical industries. To sum up the main messages those sectors use to try and reframe the problems, number one, people pollute by littering. Number two, people don't understand the complexities of plastics. And number three, people demand plastics because they make our lives so much better. When you're working on sustainability topics, it comes as a bit of a shock to find out that the plastics and petrochemical industries are promoting plastics as being good for climate solutions. Alice explained how they're trying to position plastic as a key material to help us through the transition. I guess we can see the rationale behind that theory for, say, plastics in solar panels and lighter, cheaper, cheaper wind turbine blades. But what's particularly worrying for me is the push to develop and encourage chemical recycling solutions for textiles, electronic waste and, of course, for plastics themselves, whether that's packaging or other plastic materials. Perhaps, though, this shouldn't come as a surprise once we realise how the industry has tried to divert attention from the toxicity and health issues associated with plastics. Alice highlighted just a few of the issues arising from plastics when they're in use, once they're discarded, and perhaps most shocking of all, for the people working in or living close to the petrochemical operations. It feels as though this industry should be at the top of our list for policies and legislation on extended producer responsibility, ideally with a set of consistent global regulations. Why do we allow businesses to make more money by avoiding the research, development and investment to make their products safe? And to profit by letting their products and their production wastes escape into the system? That includes greenhouse gases, toxic chemicals, microplastics and more. Why do we think it's okay to allow their businesses to harm people and our living planet, while we pay a heavy price with our health and our future well-being? To paraphrase Paul Hawkin, it's like stealing the future and turning it into profit. Exploitative capitalism, if you like. Okay, that's my rant over for now. If you want to know more, I highly recommend Alice's book, Plastic Unlimited, which sheds a light on how this keeps happening and how the plastics industry uses these and other tactics to divert our attention from the real issues. I've included a link in the show notes together with some of the other articles we discussed. In the Rethink office this week, I did a keynote for a global facilities management company, BGIS. Using some of the material from my next book, I put together a new talk which covers the key principles of circular solutions and some of the main objections that crop up. I'm thinking of adapting that talk for the podcast, probably in episode 101. So there you go, another episode of the Circular Economy podcast wrapped up. Thanks so much to our guest this week, Professor Alice Ma. And thanks also to AIMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, for highlighting Alice's work. You can find out more about Alice Ma, about Alice's book, Plastic Unlimited, and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. 
I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities, with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn.